This is Jasper Reed, and this is Letter from India. It's six months to the day since uh, the Indian lockdown began on the 24th of March 2020. And I wanted to spend some time just talking about and reflecting upon the last six months. What's happened in India, what lockdown meant, what we did, what we learned. This is a sort of story of despair, really, but it's also a story, curiously, of tremendous hope. So... The starting point of this story was was the day before the lockdown when Prime Minister Narendra Modi announced that we would have what's called the Junta curfew, which loosely translated means the people's curfew, a kind of national team event, a national pride event. It started at seven in the morning and it ended at seven at night. And when it ended, um, the entire population was encouraged to come out onto the streets or their balconies or lean out their windows and bang pots and pans and make a hoopla and a noise. And um, that happened and it all felt very um, exhilarating in a funny way, actually. We could see neighbours we'd never seen before. There was a sort of community spirit abroad. Of course, that changed rather rapidly the next day when, out of the blue, an entire national lockdown was announced. And the terms of the lockdown, it, it quickly proved, were effectively the most draconian on earth. They had looked at the rest of the world, the administration of India, and had basically decided to up the ante. So there was literally no movement, there was no warning. The entire country, which is a country of 1.4 billion people, was put under lock and key. You can go out, no one could come in. All of the residential areas were locked up and police and the military and the security services deployed nationally, effectively overnight. So. It was an alarming contrast to, you know, the camaraderie and the, the, you know, the joie de vivre, if you like, of the day before. Megan and I and the children, we live in New Delhi. Our children are twin girls, currently aged 13. They were, they were 12 then. We wondered what to do in the morning. And by the afternoon, Megan and I had formulated a plan. And our plan was based on a simple thing, which was that because we own restaurants in India, we had the... Um, the privilege of having what's called COVID passes because we're an essential service and thus we were able to move around the city, which was effectively a golden ticket in terms of moving about. So the next day we we headed out in our car, really slightly full of fear and trepidation to see what we could see. And we teamed up with um, my colleague and friend Mukesh Kumar, who's my finance director, we met him having gone through multiple police roadblocks and explained ourselves to the pretty jumpy security guys what we were doing. We met at one of our restaurants and, and talked to Mukesh to get the lie of the land. And of course, it was ghostly. This is a city of 25 million people and there was literally no one on the streets, which is the opposite of this city. That Anyone that knows Delhi knows that it is thronged. It's a it's a press of humanity. It's one of the most extraordinary kind of expressions of people and crowds anywhere in the world. But there was nobody, literally nobody on the streets. After a bit of debate, Megan and Mukesh and I concluded that the best thing we could do was to scout around for people who needed some help. So we did that and we targeted a few residential areas and we looked at what we thought was the right place to start, which was building sites. And of course, we gingerly knocked on the doors of these building sites. No one said anything, so we, we walked on in. And over the course of the day, we found 
multiple sets of labourers, I mean, literally cowering in the building site, scared to go out, the contractor had run away. And it became very apparent very quickly that they neither knew what was happening, they were, they were alarmed, and, and more importantly, they were running out of food. And if anyone's ever seen an Indian building site, it's not just you know, the contractor workers, the guys working construction, it's their families, it's their children. So you have these micro-communities. So quite rapidly, we, we, we realized what we could do because we had these parties and we had some will. And so we went and we bought supplies and, and you know, we went back and we realized we didn't have baby milk. So we went and got that and we realized we didn't have diapers. So we went and got that. And bit by bit, we sort of ended the day and we, we kind of went home exhausted. But, you know, obviously sort of a bit inspired. The next day we went out and basically did the same. And, you know, the story kind of went from there. So we, we put the word out a bit and suddenly we got tip-offs about people, you know, people who were friends and, you know, who were locked up and very, very scared to go out or couldn't go out. But they knew about um, families on building sites. So we started to drive around and bit by bit we had, you know, 20, 30 groups we were helping amounting to, you know, two or 300 people. Then what we realized, of course, was, you know, our whole business was shut down. We owned 25 restaurants in India and um, we had an idea that, that since we were paying our people and we were in a fortunate position to be able to do that, many in India and around the world couldn't, our, our thinking was that we would basically repurpose the business, which of course is a food business innately, into being a, a feeding business, a social enterprise. So bit by bit, we basically got passes for people. We got a few restaurants open. We created go-downs from those restaurants, you know, storage depots, basically. We built relationships with suppliers. We went from sort of retail buying to wholesale buying. And we connected ourselves to different NGOs, groups of people. So bit by bit, we were able to kind of marry up the, you know, the demand of, of, of poor people with, with the supply of food. And what we would offer was rations, rice, dal, you know, which is lentils, uh, milk, water, um, vitamins, children's supplies, sanitary napkins, you know, all the things that you need. And so, you know, suddenly we were, we were feeding and looking after a thousand people, then 2,000 people, then 3,000 people. And we went from um, targeting building sites to moving into slums. Uh, Megan and I at one point drove our family car, you know, a sort of Toyota people carrier into a slum called um, Sangam Vihar, which is about as congested as anywhere you'll, you'll see on earth. And we worked with a local NGO called Umid, full of, you know, young guys, inspirational guys who knew the lie of the land. It was a slightly alarming situation because basically a crowd formed, um, and the car got ransacked, which was alarming for Megan and I. And we realized we were, you know, as, as English people, basically in the middle of a Delhi slum during lockdown, we were out of our depth. So, we retreated. We had another scrape. Elsa and I, one of our one of our twin daughters, when we stopped on the side of a motorway because there was a family walking by, you know, looking like they were walking out of the city. So we stopped to give them some of our supplies from the boost of the car. But then about thirty people emerged from the bushes, and um, I got into a uh, basically not a fight, but a but a push me pull you thing. Um, to get people back out of the car and it was rather alarming because our daughter was in the car. Anyway, we, we got out of that and we drove away 
um, but it was a you know it was a lesson in terms of limits. So you know this all continued on, and we we bit by bit we got to know the communities that we served, and what you realised was the whole world was basically represented, and and we learned a lot about different communities. So if we looked at the slums, which are of course full of what they call daily wages, people that are paid. You know, as as the as the description says, every day, and of course, in lockdown, you're not paid, and you're out of supplies, and you're basically ruined within a very short period of time. And this community was made up of people that would sell balloons on the high street, um, prostitutes, eunuchs, mendicant holy men, uh, casual labourers, all the different um, street level communities, and of course you got extraordinary insights. So after a while, and, and horrifyingly, as we engage with different communities, for example, you know, the prostitutes working in the red light districts, you realise that these were people who had been trafficked as children. And then, of course, what became clear as the lockdown dragged on month after month was that, you know, the, the history would possibly appallingly repeat itself because the children of these prostitutes, and again, they live in communities, suddenly became in danger of being sold themselves as their mothers had been. So, you know, we saw everything and anything and, and you know, it was clearly for us middle class, very privileged people. It was an enormous insight into, you know, the lives of others and the bleak reality. And of course, what that did for us personally was it basically belittled the virus and any residual fear we might have felt of it because you quickly realised that, you know, everybody else all around you had 20, 30, 40 things that were more dangerous than the virus. And indeed, people were extremely perplexed about why this thing had shut their lives down. So we went everywhere. We went across the city. In the end, we were, we were serving about 100 different communities, and the numbers grew and grew and grew to the point where, at the peak, we were helping 32,000 families. Of course, in parallel with this, we were raising money to do this around the world. We were very fortunate in the sense that our investors were willing to fund our business. And of course, the proposition for people that were donating for us was interesting because it meant that every penny was going on food. You know, the, the labor that was us and our team was, was sort of paid for. And we knew about food. So, you know, people found this a, an interesting proposition because if you were sitting at home in New York or Tokyo or Hong Kong and we ended up raising money from 26 countries, you could see that your position was a great deal more privileged than people who were completely at the front line of this. And you were able to give an act, actually, that was the thing, is it was immediate action through people that weren't going to take a penny from it. And you could give, you know, $10 in, the, in, in San Francisco overnight, and the next day it would be deployed on the street. So it was a kind of a remarkable piece of fundraising. We raised um, £250,000, you know, $320,000 in the space of pretty much six weeks. It, I mean, we're still having money coming in. And that was everything from huge donations, individual donations of as much as $50,000. You know, through to children, people are girls' age who just gave a few bucks here and there. We, in the end, have had 1,500 donors from all around the world. And that's in the context of a huge amount of money being raised left, right and centre. I mean, we did this a lot through a crowdsourcing website, which effectively collapsed under the pressure. 
And at one point we were worried we couldn't even get our money out of, of this thing. And there was, um, you know, we'd become quite high profile because we raised an astounding amount of money and eventually had to use a friend in San Francisco and you the founder of this company and blah, blah, blah. And our money was released. So, you know, people are, I don't know, there's a lot of talk about selfishness during the coronavirus. And I believe in a lot of that. I think there's one too many people discovering themselves and, you know, TikToking from the comfort of their own homes. On the other hand, what we experienced was a kind of global outpouring of of brotherhood, really, brotherhood, sisterhood, all those things. And, you know, in that sense, a really bad situation, the situation of despair is actually, a, you know, a beacon of hope in, in many senses. Um, you know, going back to the story, what happened then, of course, at a certain point after two or three months of lockdown, uh, the, the communities we were um, we were serving, many of whom are migrant workers, so they come all from all around India, I mean, particularly the states of Bihar and Uttar Pradesh and West Bengal, and you know, these are faraway places, and there's a long tradition, of course, in India, especially at this point of the economic cycle, of people travelling very far from home to work. And when they travel, they travel with their families, so it's, you know, it's a caravan of people, but of course these people eventually concluded that staying in Delhi was a no-sum game. So they made a break for it. And of course, that led to an appalling situation, which was very large numbers. I mean, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people walking out of the cities in, in the high summer in May. You know, the temperature in, in North India can hit close to 50 degrees Celsius. And when people were walking out with their children and their families and carrying stuff on their heads and grandparents on their back. And of course, because they were trying to dodge the police who had roadblocks and were pushing them back, they would then go off you know, they would go off the main highways and into the bush, which is lawless and dangerous. And, you know, people were dying, of course, and that, and that was appalling. And we then realized that what we should do is get into transporting people home. So over a month or so, and with, with, with huge endeavor from our team, we managed to become the first organization in India licensed to bus people home. And of course, it was a public private partnership involving us, the Haryana government, the health authorities, the security services, everyone was very jumpy about this, highly political, cross-border, interstate, multiple parties. But one way or another, we managed to get 5,000 people home, you know, children, families, old people. And it was a curious thing because quite a lot of people said to us, aren't you spreading the virus? You know, what are we going to do when these people aren't here to restart the economy? We even had people saying, you know, why are you providing air-conditioned buses? They cost too much. So it was a sort of strange um, dynamic of of people who knew there was a problem but you know would sort of politicize it or raise practical issues that we felt were irrelevant but in the end what we said to people is what do you want do you want people to walk out and die or do you want them bust home so you know that's what we got into so you know here we are where are we six months in um, you know the program's still kind of going we've kept a reserve money we're still helping people. We teamed up with a partner organization in Calcutta, especially when Cyclone Amphan hit. And Amphan has been the, the, the worst cyclone for about 250 years to, to, hit the, to hit West Bengal. And people who were locked down there and in despair suddenly had this, you know, this devil of a, devil of a storm come through. I mean, I spoke to people in Calcutta at the time that said it was, said, said it was the scariest night of their life. So, you know, there was a lot of work done in Calcutta. So we, you know, that's still, still ongoing and Calcutta's quite locked down and Delhi's opening up. And so we're, 
we're still here six months in, but I wanted just to, to tell that story a little bit. Um, it's really a story about the people uh, when it comes down to it. And, and, you know, I'm a bit sheepish about saying that what we did was in any way um, noble. Um, you know, it is noble, of course. But, um, you know, in India, there's a very strong tradition of, of not talking about what you do. So I'm, I'm conscious of that. But I suppose what I really wanted to get across was that the 32,000 people we helped, the 5,000 people we bust home, you know, are, are really the heroes of all of this in the sense that, you know, the, the virus is a, is an irrelevance in terms of their health. I mean, we, you know, we have 20 diseases here, dengue, chikungunya, malaria, cholera, Japanese encephalitis, all these things are regular diseases that kill, maim, or, or, you know, otherwise destroy the lives of people. So the coronavirus is low down the list, but when you have basically been ruined and, and you know, you, you'll be out of savings in a few days, to then tough it out and then to get yourself back to your home state is the triumph of humanity. So this is really about those people and, and you know, um, it's them who, in the end, uh, demonstrate the relative irrelevance of, of the virus through through the triumph of, of their spirit. So that's our sort of story from here. It's a personal story. It's kind of a universal story because so many people were involved. It's a it's a moment in time. It was a revelation for us personally. It was a coming together of our family. It was extraordinary for our you know our twin twelve year old. British daughters being part of this. They incidentally, by the way, had a parallel program where they were feeding and looking after 80 street dogs and raised a lot of money and, um, you know, were out around Delhi during lockdown feeding these poor pooches and no doubt saved a lot of them. We see that we see the puppies of those pooches now. So, um, you know, like everything in India, it's, it's men, animal, the spirit, etc. is all kind of one thing. That's what that's what everyone believes in, and I think when when you see it, you know, during times like this, you're in, you're inclined to believe it yourself. So um, that's the end of this letter from India. Um, please send me your feedback. I'd love to hear thoughts on this. The story hasn't finished, but six months in, I felt that it was an opportunity to record it. <laughs>